this is simple what science says. There were a lot of people here, and as more family came in, and you ask any scientist that deal with population genetics, can I find the DNA of this family 2,600 years ago they came here? And they will tell you, how are you going to do that? Good luck. <laughs> you know, good luck. And I have approached this question because I wanted to make sure in my bias as a Latter-day Saint scientist and my bias and my not since the, the obvious, you know. And so I talked to some of my colleagues that are much more experienced, you know, and have done research that know what they're talking about. And, and I went, you know, it's like, can, is, would it be possible to test this hypothesis? And it's like, uh, how are you going to do that? You know, because the question is not, can we find Israelites' DNA among the Native Americans today? The question is, can I reconstruct Lehi's DNA based on descendants that are alive today. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. This is Russell Stevenson, and today we have Dr. Hugo A. Prego, a population geneticist, who will be discussing with us the meaning and significance of genetic studies for Latter-day Saint history. Thanks so much for joining us, Hugo. It's good to be here. Let's talk generally about the significance of genetics research for the study of Latter-day Saint history generally. You know, from, from bird's eye view, we, we typically haven't asked these kinds of questions. So how has uh, your field of study generally changed the way we look at Latter-day Saint history? I, I don't think we're really changing anything, but we are bringing in something. I think that uh, over time, uh, technology, uh, and not just with genetics, but you would agree with uh, any kind of fields, you know, computer and uh, uh, digital imaging and other ways, uh, we've been able to bring in some tools that were al- are allowing us to take a different look or bring in some new data that complement what we might had before, just using traditional methods, you know, um, like you say, the archives and so on. And then uh, what we can do is that we can bring this data and uh, look at it within the context of what we already knew and see if we are shedding more light or uh, maybe we are confirming that we really cannot answer a particular question, you know, like maybe before it was a suspicion and we're confirming it, you know, using this, uh, this genetic data. You know, one of your major projects is studying the... Uh you know, the family of Joseph Smith, specifically within the context of polygamy. So tell us a little bit more about your work there. Well, I started actually looking at the opposite direction, um, which was uh, a number of years ago when I started working for Sorenson uh, uh, Molecular Genealogy Foundation in Salt Lake City, and I was a graduate student. Uh, um, one of the, the, the questions that was asked is like, isn't it interesting, you know, we're building this project for uh, to help people do their family history, their genealogy, and fulfill to some degree the Latter-day Saints commandment to trace your ancestry back as far as you can. And yet, uh, uh, the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, uh, up to that point, I mean, uh, that was something that was brought to me. Um, there was uncertainty about where he came from in, uh, in England. Genealogically, the Smith family and the genealogists that were interested in the Smith family were able to accurately trace back Joseph Smith's ancestry all the way to the first Smith in America. For those people who are not well-versed in genetic studies, they're not aware of you know, how you actually carry out this sort of research, 
break down for us the logistics of how you trace somebody's ancestry genetically. Like, what is it that you do step by step? Okay, so everyone carries DNA. We all have DNA. You, you know, we have it in, our, in the cells of our body. And uh, the DNA is not created from nothing. It's inherited from those that came before us. So um, the, the simple math when it comes to DNA is that we all get 50% of our DNA from each of our, uh, of our parents, so 50 from mom, 50% from, from dad. And then on average we have about 25% of that DNA from each of our grandparents and then he half every generation. So uh, as, as I go back, uh, I only get half on average from each of the individual uh, on that particular generation. On the other hand, I'm also giving only half of my, gene- uh, of my genetics of my DNA to my posterity. So my children will only get each one of them 50% of my DNA. And so that DNA becomes an uh, an unbroken chain that connects generations of past with generations in the future for a number of generations. And then because there are so many ancestors that that DNA tend to dilute and disappear in in many cases, we won't won't talk about the the, the, the mathematical uh, models on on, on DNA, but, you know, just sufficient to know that within... uh, a reasonable amount of generation, you can demonstrate how people are related with each other based on their DNA. Within the DNA family, uh, you, there are different, uh, not, not all DNA is created alike, meaning there are certain parts of the DNA that follow specific inheritance patterns, meaning specific lines of our family tree. More specifically, uh, every male carry a chromosome called the Y chromosome, which is the one that determines the male gender, which is inherited exclusively from the father, and goes back along the paternal line as many generations as you want. And uh, so that becomes a very powerful tool to trace uh, um, common paternal ancestry. There is another part of DNA called mitochondrial DNA, which follow the maternal line. And then there is the biggest, comp- the biggest part of our DNA, which is autosomal DNA, uh, which is uh, over 3 billion pieces of DNA which uh, we share with all of our ancestors. So I got 50% of that from mom, 54% from dad, and then 25 from grandparents, and about 20, 12% from each of great, um, our great-grandparents. And, and then uh, eventually um, you only have some DNA of some ancestor, but not all the ancestors, because there is a lot of chance in the, in the process. But we, we won't get into that. Let's talk specifically then about the question of Joseph Smith siring children through polygamous unions. Historically, Latter-day Saints have not really been aware of anybody, though there have been various candidates who mm-hmm. have been presented as possibilities. That's correct. But there's been no conventional accepted wisdom on this. And more, you know, you could even argue when Joseph F. Smith is collecting affidavits attesting to Joseph Smith's polygamy, you know, even though you have women who were saying, yes, I did consummate my marriage with Joseph Smith, I had a sexual relationship with him, uh, they never claimed to have had children with him. It's It's been a bit of a mystery because, you know, how could Joseph Smith have consummated all these marriages without having any children through these marriages? Yes, and uh, I'm not an expert on Mormon polygamy, so I, I uh, only superficially know about all the affidavits and all the documentary data that that is available, uh, documented um, data that is available on that subject. But what I can tell you is, for one thing, you do not need to have a child every time you have sex. Um, the fact that uh, a child doesn't exist does not answer the question, did Joseph Smith have sexual relation with his multiple wife? You kind of have to look at, at other sources for that information. And so I'm not making that claim, you know, 
uh, oh, there is not, there are no genetically or right. biologically children. Therefore, Joseph Smith, you know, have a sex because that that is a connection. I'm yeah, that's a, a non sequitur, right? Yeah. It, it, one of them does not lead to the other. But certainly. if you do have a child, then you know that there was a sexual relation. <laughs> right. that, the, the other way around works works fine, you know. But the, the question that we were trying to answer wasn't. Did Joseph Smith consummate his marriages or or was um, of some other kind of nature? Because I don't think genetics can uh, fully answer that question. But there is a, a right rightful question that uh, that people want to answer: Is am I a descendant of Joseph Smith? And that's more of a of a personal identity question. And some sometimes we get so caught up with uh, with history. With, uh, with the sensation, the right? With the sex, yeah. right? We all want to talk exactly. about sex. Exactly, you know, kind of, we want to, uh, maybe it's a, it's a kind of crude way to say, but we all kind of want to pick in Joseph Smith's bedroom, you know, and uh, it's like, you know, let let the poor guy alone, you know, like you wouldn't, wouldn't like people to do that to you, right? But again, genetics is not really going to, to be able to fully answer that question. But there is a, a human aspect that we tend to forget, which is that of his posterity and knowing... Uh, whether he was your ancestor or, or somebody else was, okay? So with that, we can answer uh, that, and uh, we can answer now more than we could in the past because technology is as advanced and we have some new tools that we can use and better way to understand what the results means and what they're telling you. Now, how many people have approached you about whether they were the descendants of Joseph Smith? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. So if, for, for the, and you said the right the right word, you know. Uh, for one thing, a child, because there is about a dozen, if you look at all the different sources and if you talk to historians that are dedicated to church history, to Joseph Smith's life, there is no consensus about who could have been, who is the best candidate to be uh, considered Joseph Smith's son or daughter through polygamous relationship. What we know is that Joseph Smith had nine biological children with Emma, plus two that he adopted. And out of all these children, only four of the biological ones, four sons, grew up to adulthood. And all the living descendants of Joseph Smith today only come from two of these four sons, which are Joseph Smith III and Alexander Hale, which were the president and apostles of the, of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But what we know is that Joseph Smith was a, a fertile man. He could procreate. He had nine biological children that, that, was re, that were recorded, right? So that eliminates the suspicion that maybe he couldn't have children because he could, right? That's, that's the evidence. Talking about, you know, with different uh, historians, looking at different sources, and uh, you have about a dozen of possibly other children, uh, some maybe are better documented or referenced in the literature than others, you know. Uh, of course, uh, you know, not that I want to take away the spiritual aspect uh, of some individuals, but I even had individuals coming to him and say, I had a dream that I was a descendant of Joseph Smith. And I was like, that's nice, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, thanks for sharing. Thanks for right? sharing, um, you know. But, a powerful spiritual experience it, it, for you. And it's great, you know, but I don't want to, I don't, you know, like when I, when I invest time to look into something like that, since I don't have a personal interest in, in the, and I'm dedicating time and resources, resources to answer this question. I just want to make the story, the history, not the story, the history right. If we have books that say Joseph Smith had this son with this woman, 
based on this circumstantial evidence, and I can find a way to show if that was confirmed or not, then future books will have to consider the genetic evidence and make history right. That's that's what it it draws to. So I'm I'm concerned about that aspect as well. So about those in. Uh, if you make a list, you have about a dozen of these potential, possible, probable children of Joseph Smith, and of people that. And so, but what happened is that each one of these children would have needed to grow to adulthood, and have a living posterity, because the way that you do this is that you test the descendants to reconstruct the DNA of the alleged child, and then compare that to the DNA of Joseph Smith reconstructed from the descendants that he had with Emma. Okay, so we have the confirmed descendants through Alexander Hale and Joseph Smith III, and then you rec- you do the same process with whatever candidate comes uh, as, a, as a potential child of Joseph Smith, and you look for his descendants or her descendants to do that. So if Joseph Smith had a child with another woman, and that child died in infancy, and we have absolutely no idea where he's buried, you know, like uh, an infant... Uh, yeah, you, know. you don't have any hair samples, you don't have so, bone fracture... So you can add There's nothing that. you can do. So yeah. one of the things we need to, to keep in mind is that maybe that list, although it's not might not be exhaustive, you know, and complete, we might not ever ever be able to tackle each one of those documented or recorded uh, additional children. Sorry if it took so long, but the question is, was how many of these people came forth? And so far, I had uh, that I was able to test and and uh, and uh, bring. Uh, fourth an answer through DNA is eight. Eight? Yes. Okay. Eight cases. And some of these cases are better um, historically documented than others. I, I consider them, you know, a stronger case and a weaker case, you know. What kinds of barriers are presented in studying the, uh, you know, the gen- genetic makeup of male descendants as opposed to female descendants? And out of all the candidates that you have studied... Are there any who have been demonstrated that they are, in fact, the descendants of Joseph Smith? Good question. So, with regard to the first question, there is a, a definitive difference with regard to a possible child that is a, a girl versus a child that is a, a boy. Nowadays, if you have a paternity test where uh, a man is trying to prove if his children are his, you do a paternity test that doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl, you can do it. All you need is the test, the DNA of the living father and the living mother and the living child that you are trying to demonstrate the biological paternity. By having these three samples, there is a fairly straightforward test that you can do and answer the question. We don't have that with Joseph Smith because Joseph Smith is dead with a boy uh, you can look at the Y chromosome. So knowing that Joseph Smith was a male and he had two boys, Alexander Hale and Joseph Smith III, who have the, on their own, they had sons and sons and sons, so sons, grandsons, grand, great-grandsons, all down Alexander and Joseph Smith III. We can reconstruct a very accurate Joseph Smith Y chromosome profile, and it is just as accurate as if I would have Joseph Smith give me a, a saliva sample and run in the same test. It would be the same thing. 
it would not be any different. That's a that's an impressive uh, degree of confidence that we can place in that test. That, that is that is it's very straightforward. It follows an unbroken line. It's not mixed with any other type of DNA. It's not shared. There are no contribution by others. So we is a straight uh, uh, is a straight arrow type of approach. With girls, you have a bigger problem because the girls do not inherit the father or Y chromosome. Otherwise, they would not be girls. Okay. And uh, they don't inherit the father mitochondrial DNA because a man is incapable to pass the mitochondrial DNA of his genes to of of, of his cells to uh, any of his children. All the mitochondrial DNA it comes from the mother. And so, what do you do? Well, there is autosomal DNA that that could be used to do that, but autosomal DNA um, enters in the realm of probabilities. And so in order to increase our level of confidence, which is never going to reach 100%, but we can get pretty close to it, then you need to get a lot more people tested. And because you lose about 50% of it at each generation, then you're also kind of running against time because we don't have any children of Joseph Smith alive. We don't have any grandchildren that are alive. So we're already kind of going down. So these will be people that would have 50 or 25% of Joseph Smith DNA. So now we're going down to like people that would have maybe, that are still alive, they would have 12 or 6 or 3% of his DNA. And then I need to find another person that I think is also a descendant of Joseph Smith through a girl. And uh, she would have given their descendants the autosomal DNA of her father, which is Joseph Smith. But that same process of Alvin at each generation would occur. And so now I have maybe a potential descendant of a daughter of Joseph Smith, of a potential daughter of Joseph Smith, that would carry 3% of the DNA. And then I have a, a descendant of Joseph Smith that carry 3% of his DNA. And then I'm overlapping them. And so I'm expecting that out of 100%, they would have inherited the same three percent. Do you see? Do you see the difficulty? Yeah. With yes. That? Yeah. You're, you're you're making some rather large assumptions, exactly. right? Or le- or maybe anticipations or exactly. hope. So it's like, oh, they don't share any DNA. These two people don't share any DNA. Oh, okay, then they are not related. It's not true. I can be related to a distant cousin. Just we didn't have enough. Uh, that by chance we didn't inherit the same components of DNA on the same chromosomes to show that relation. So what you need to do, you need to test a lot of people on one on, on one hand, and a lot of people you need to find the oldest alive individual, so the closest in number of generation to the person that you're trying to reconstruct, which with the Y chromosome you didn't have that issue, and the same on the other side, and then compare that. So extremely difficult. And this technology for the Y chromosome was been around now for uh, maybe like 20 years. But this one about the autosomal DNA that allowed us to look at uh, girls has been around only for uh, the, at, at this level. And the understanding of how to run the statistics has been around for less than five years. And uh, So this is cutting-edge research. Yeah, I mean, this absolutely. Is, I mean, these are brand-new questions. So let's talk— uh, You want to answer the other question? Oh, Yes, please. So, the the all so looking at the seven cases okay. uh, of boys and the one girl that we look, uh, none of them show to be biologically related to Joseph Smith. So one of his wives was Sylvia Sessions Lyon, and she had a daughter named Josephine Lyon. And the question has been: Was Josephine the daughter of Sylvia and Windsor, or was she the daughter? of Sylvia and Joseph. 
For Latter-day Saints, this is significant because it is one thing to have a child with a polygamous wife who is not married to another husband. It's another to have a child with a woman who is still married because that feels like adultery. Well, right? I think the question, more than adultery, I think the and again, this is me speaking, I'm not speaking for, I'm not again an historian, mm-hmm. but I think the concern or the, the word people are having a hard time is uh, how could... You have uh, in Victorian America a woman that would uh, uh, at the same time have sexual relation, uh, switch from one man to the other, uh, being married to two men and have the same type of relationship with both men. And that that, that is very hard for us to accept today as Latter-day Saints or, or as individual. And I think it's hard, well, it's hard to conceive that thought that even back then was okay, you know. And, you know, we have documentation attesting to sexual relationships with a number of his wives, but none of them have been among his polyandrous wives. So Josephine's, you know, genetics might illuminate the fact that he did in fact have a sexual relationship with a polyandrous wife. And and I know a little more about uh, that family from an historical point of view. I actually was approached to work on this case back in 2000. So that marks about 16 years that I've been involved with uh, not studying uh, this particular situation and the documents that came with it, but working with the family, with the descendants of Josephine that want to notice the, the answer once and for all based on the affidavit that Josephine signed based on her mother's uh, last moments of, of uh, earthly life, uh, uh, testimonial to her that, uh, that she was Josephine. And one of the things we have to um, consider, you know, and it's helpful in this situation is that we're looking at a relationship that, between Joseph Smith and Sylvia Session with Windsor in the picture that took place around 1844 with uh, the testimonial left by Sylvia Session to her mother on her deathbed uh, something toward the end of the century, I, I think was a bit, we're looking about 1885 or 1895, I cannot remember the, the exact year right now. And then uh, Josephine recording the affidavit at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, it's, uh, you have some gaps in the chronology. There, there are some, yes, and when you have gaps like that in, and there's, it takes long, uh, you're always wondering uh, uh, if the information is being recorded and transmitted correctly. Again, I'm not a historian here, so I'm not the one that needs to judge that, but it's important to point out that uh, um, Sylvia Session didn't walk out of a bedroom and say, hey, I just hey. said <laughs> that this has just happened to me. You right. know, okay, this is... Uh, I think it helps a little bit creating a more uh, acceptable context, you know, as, as we're dealing with this. And it's, to me, it's important because I don't, I don't want to always take for granted that, you know, somebody might have done something, you know, jump a conclusion. That's what I'm saying. You know, let me tell you so how I approach the thing, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, in a second, you know, is that much. I didn't only compare Josephine descendants DNA with Joseph Smith descendants DNA. I also compared Josephine descendants with other descendants of her father Windsor. So other lions that are now involved with the Joseph Smith and Sylvia Session relationship. Mm. And so I use them as controls. And so Josephine descendants DNA is shared with the other lions. So so showing that we not only the Joseph Smith you know, most likely, you know, there is no evidence, there is no DNA that uh, that uh, she shared with him, but she indeed shares DNA with the Lion family. 
you know, uh, adds to strength, double the strength of the of the conclusion. And how many samples did you draw on? I, this study was based on 55 uh, individuals, um, about half of them from uh, uh, Joseph Smith and the other half from Josephine. So this is a fascinating conclusion, and it's certainly going to be of a tremendous interest. Yeah, and then historians to have to kind of take now this, this affidavit and say, okay, well, what, what does, does it mean? mean? Right? Does it, is, what? Referring to some, is she referring to some spiritual? kind of spiritual relationship, which has been the, you know, that has been one theory that was postulated by, uh, by Danes as well as some others. Yeah. Uh, well, fascinating. So, you know, we've talked about one case in which genetics can solve a, a long-standing mystery within the, you know, the study of Mormon history. Uh, let's talk about some of your work or some of your research, you know, however deep or limited it was, on a Book of Mormon genetics. Yes. For the past uh, generation or so, you know, ever since you, know, you see the, the rise of genetics research as we now understand it, you know, a number of research scientists have uh, critiqued uh, Latter-day Saints for, for claiming that the Lamanites in the Book of Mormon were, in fact, uh, you know, the descendants of ancient Near Eastern peoples. They said, you know, listen, the genetics just don't show any kind of similarities. They would say that we, we should expect there to be similarities between, you know, Native Americans of, of, of various ethnicities and ancient Palestinians. And it's not there. Therefore, there is no way, they would argue, that there could be an ancient Near Eastern community that would come across the ocean and then you know, develop this, lar- you know, this large civilization in Mesoamerica or what have you. And of course, the conclusion for them is the Book of Mormon is a 19th century fiction. Now, based on your work, does their theory and interpretation hold any credence? You know, um, I can see why some people would jump at that conclusion. It definitely makes sense to look at the data that way. I am actually uh, taking and being more cautious about that. And and I'll explain that to you. We've been talking about Joseph Smith and the difficulties of reconstructing an individual that lived 150 years ago, DNA, and uh, based on his descendants today and how some components of that DNA are disappearing. And uh, in a few generations, we won't be able to reconstruct Joseph Smith's DNA even if he still have thousands of living descendants alive and is lost due to chance, okay? So, and I, I'll give you a simple example. You go back 10 generations yourself in time. If you want to know how many ancestors you had 10 generations ago, all you do is take the number two, which is the number of people that uh, um, you have each generation, you know, and you elevate that to the power of that generation. So if you want to know how many ancestors you have 10 generations ago, you do, you do 2 to the 10th. So that's 2 times 2, 10 times. You have 1,024 ancestors, right? Everybody would have ten, uh, that many ancestors. And yet, when I look at my DNA, statistically, only about 10, 12% of them have contributed DNA that I have in myself. So I have about the, the DNA of 100 of my 1,000 ancestors. That means that from a genetic point of view, the other 900 could have well not existed because they didn't contribute anything to me. And yet, even if one of them did not exist, I wouldn't be here today because it took these 1,000 people to have children when they did to fill the next generation and the next generation and the next generation down to me. So only one of these 1,000 people was late to come back home that night or his wife had a headache and didn't want to have a relationship that night and you wouldn't be here. But yet, so you're, you're genealogically related to these 1,000 people. They're all your ancestors. 
but genetically you're only representing about 10% of them. So we're looking at this, looking at Joseph Smith, reconstructing the DNA of an individual that lived 150 years ago is an example of a genealogical study using DNA. We're looking at the DNA of an individual. What people are, in my mind, oversimplifying with regards to the Book of Mormon issue is that they take the text of the Book of Mormon, which talks about this great culture, this great civilization, and the wars that took place, and and so the dichotomy between the Lamanites and Nephites, and the good and the evil, and the obedience and the rebellions, you know, and they follow the story throughout the book, and, the, and it's impressive, and, and there are big numbers and, and big stories involved with that. And we think that all of that come from the, from the one family that came to the Americas, which is a possible interpretation, which I'm not saying is wrong, but I'm saying there are other explanations. And now people can say, well, Hugo, you're making a stretch here. You, you can't try to cope out of that. But the reality is if you talk with anybody that is a side of Mormonism and you present them the case study of a family of maybe 30 or 50 individuals coming here in a continent that have millions of people. And, and we, that's an important aspect, too. Sometimes Latter-day Saints have ignored the fact that there were millions of people Yeah, we, we cannot deny that. No matter what anybody has said in the past and how people have read the Book of Mormon, even general authorities, the way they might have interpreted that in the past, you cannot deny that the continent has been peopled by indigenous people all the way from North America to South America for thousands of years before the arrival of Lee Ice Party. Okay, that's that's the, that's how you need to to humble yourself and and ch- change your paradigms and uh, read the Book of Mormon in that context. And you'll be surprised how many things are going to jump out at you from the Book of Mormon when you start thinking at the question where here were other people here before they came. Okay? The DNA argument. I should find some Israelites' DNA here, like uh, because they are the principal ancestor and so on and so forth, would work only with an empty continent approach. But we're not talking about that. We're not moving the goalpost. This is simple what science says. There were a lot of people here, and a small family came in, and you ask any scientist that deal with population genetics, can I find the DNA of this family 2,600 years ago they came here? And they will tell you, how are you going to do that? Good luck. (laughs) You know, good luck. And I have approached this question because I wanted to make sure in my bias as a Latter-day Saint scientist and my bias and my not since the the obvious, you know. And so I talked to some of my colleagues that are much more experienced, you know, and have done research that know what they're talking about. And and I went, you know, like, can is, would it be possible to test this hypothesis? And it's like, uh, how are you going to do that? You know, because the question is not, can we find Israelites' DNA among the Native Americans today? The question is, can I reconstruct Lehi's DNA based on descendants that are alive today? That is the question. Can we reconstruct the genetics of that family? We're reconstructing one family, not one people, not one population. We did not have half of the Israelites moving here and competing as a massive number of people trying to conquer, like the Romans did, for example, or the Truscan or other populations, the Attila de Han or Genghis Khan, you know, where there was like this major migration conquering with a lot of people where they left some genetic imprinting in the modern population. We are talking about a family. And then uh, what we don't know, you know, we have more 
more unknowns than knowns is we don't know how soon after they arrived, they start mingling with the other people that were here. Did they keep to themselves for a number of generations to grow enough to become, uh, to reach like some sort of uh, a crucial number that at that point... Like they critical could, mass. The critical right? mass, right. That they, at that point, group that was untouched, that did not mix with local population, um, had all the Israeli DNA that you want, and then they could make a dent in the in the local yeah, gene in the pool, DNA record. It's... Or they immediately start uh, mixing with the, with the same people. And when you look at the Nephi, Nephi record and Jacob's record, and it sounds to me that there is um, some conversion process. And, you know, as a Latter-day Saints, we know that through the dispensation, every time that the true gospel, the fullness of the gospel is found on the earth and you have a prophet on the earth, if it wasn't Moses or Noah or anybody else, one of the commission to have the gospel was to take it to the other people. It's never meant to be only and exclusive to yourselves. Even the Israelites being considering themselves a choice people, they would accept and admit and include other individuals based on conversion. It's not only a blood relationship that of Israel. We do that nowadays as well. So I would assume that Nephi and his family having the gospel, they would have included right away anyone that they would meet and, and agree with their standards. Now, anthropologists and other individuals can, can think, you know what, this is kind of... Uh, too much of presumptuous, you know, thinking that somebody comes in and everybody starts listening to them, you know. But we have the, in the Book of Mormon the story of the city of Zarahemla with these people, the Mulekites, that put at the king a Nephite that comes and because of something. So it's a small number of people come and they recognize something, I don't know what, and they say, you know, you're going to be our king. So the Book of Mormon itself gave us an example that this could happen. But that kind of goes beyond the point. What I'm saying is I am not surprised that we don't find any Israelite DNA in the modern population because I'm not expecting and other scientists that are not involved with the Book of Mormon issues are expecting that you could find any. Period. Right. Okay. So that's, you know, that offers a considerable amount of room, you know, within the Latter-day Saint community. So, you know, listen, genetics just cannot answer these questions in the way that we would like them to. It does answer, DNA is very accurate in answering specific questions. It's a very powerful tool. We know a lot about the East of um, who we are and where we come from. The technology is there to do that. The knowledge is there to do that. It's just we need to understand the limitation and we need to build an hypothesis that is testable and then being able to understand the limitations of doing the experiment and be able to accept the conclusions of that. And, uh, and I'm not the only one in the population genetics community outside of Mormonism. They agree that, that this will be a very, very, very improbable hypothesis to test. Excellent. So we're, we're getting towards the, uh, the end of the episode. However, I do understand that you have done some interesting case studies in regards to a, a topic th that we would not suppose to be terribly related to genetics, at least at first glance. Uh, but as your work has shown, it actually can illuminate some important things. You have uh, investigated certain case studies in the context of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Tell us more about that. Well, uh, the first case, uh, I work on two, on two cases. Both of them have been published, um, one in the Mormon history 
journal of Mormon history, the first case and the second one in uh, a forensic journal. By the way, I have a website called josephsmithdna.org. All my publications and research work is there. There is also a way to contact me if anybody has a question. But the first case was very similar to the one of Joseph Smith, where somebody approached me with a genealogical question. The genealogical question was that we know that the Mount Meadow Massacre involved uh, the extermination of uh, a number of individuals in southern Utah that were part of a caravan that was crossing Utah on on their way to, to California. 120 people were killed, cold blood, by local uh, Mormons and natives. The story goes that a number of children were preserved and they were not killed. The number of children that have been recorded as as uh, as, as being uh, preserved were 18. These were children age 8 and younger, thinking that perhaps they would not remember the events and tell others about it. And then these children were placed with local families to be raised as their own. And uh, when the whole investigation of the Manta Massacre came into action and the government, U.S. government, came and found out what happened, they were able to find and locate 17 of these children and return them to their relatives in Arkansas, which is where this caravan came from. So the question, the historical question, you can read several books on the Manta Meadow Massacre, they would always say that one of these chi- one of these children was now returned to their um, family back in Arkansas, and the Mormons hid the child away and kind of making a very bad situation into a worse one, if you want to. You know, mm. descendants of this girl, which has later been identified and recorded to be Priscilla Klingsmith, and uh, Klingsmith was the bishop down in. Uh, I believe Cedar City, or uh, yeah, and he was one of the leading organizers of the massacre. He was involved with the massacre. So uh, the timing, and you know, we're missing a birth certificate for this girl. She was two years of age uh, at the time of the of, uh, of the massacre. So there are a lot of elements that would say, you know, kind of makes sense that she would be the 18 child. And so descendants of this uh, girl have approached me, and we did uh, because it was a girl. Okay. Uh, we did a mitochondrial DNA study where uh, we look at uh, other female relatives of the Klingsmith family. To make the long, a long story short, the DNA show that Priscilla, this, this child, was indeed uh, Philip Klingsmith's daughter and not one of the 18 children from the massacre. And then later on, talking with uh, Rick Turley, told me, you know, that there was, you know, it was good that we answered this question by saying, you know, that the 18 children number was a, a later account, but the earliest account, say, actually 17. For some reason, the 18 became the one that has been uh, recorded and written and currently available. And so I think to some degree, perhaps answering this question is giving more validity to the first account. The early, so, earlier know, the account, earlier account. Right, the 17 children rather than the 18 children. That's an important story, not just you know for the understanding of Mormon history, but it's also an important story for understanding one's own history, right? Th- this is a major part of this family's lore and yes, you know same. dealing with trauma and exactly. you know the the after effects of a awful atrocity which we're still dealing with. Yes. You know, we can we can't fully put it behind us. Right. We, we have to learn from our mistakes and move on, you know. Absolutely. And, do and the best we can. And your re- your research helps us to some way or another uh, take steps towards that. So thank you so much for joining us. Currently, Dr. Hugo Prego is the director of the Rome LDS Institute of Religion, and he is also a population geneticist, an independent researcher, and he has offered us considerable 
answers in addressing various aspects of Latter-day Saint history that we have, until now, only used traditional methods, archives, oral history interviews uh, to understand. Uh, we thank you for your efforts, and we appreciate your coming today, Dr. Prigg. Thank you. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Don't fix me, just listen. That doesn't tell a guy anything, because you've seen this, right? right? A lot of guys were, okay, now, okay, I know that I can't fix, right. so now I'm just going to listen. And then and they sit there like a statue. Right, with deer in the headlights. <laughs> and they think they're doing a good job. Head not moving. They're doing the best they can. And, and the, why, the woman's going, what the crap is that? Yeah, and why so aren't I, you listening? <laughs> it's amazing how many guys I have taught this. I thought it was too basic. I thought it was almost insulting email to teach people this, right. especially guys. But I actually literally teach them, stop, look, and listen. As you stop whatever it is you're doing, if your wife is in your proximity, in your field of vision, I don't care what it is, stop what you're doing, put your phone down. Mm -hmm. Close it, put it in your pocket, put your laptop down, stop. Look, physically square your shoulders to her shoulders. Look in her eyes directly and then hit the back of your head like a bobblehead doll and get that head nodded, okay? <laughs> this is where the listening starts. We get some physiological this is Jonathan. He looks like a bobblehead right now. Right. He actually slapped the back of his head and he started wobbling his head in the nod, yes. Uh, and then I've written down a script for guys and we're in session writing down, okay, now say these words. Uh-huh. Yeah. What else? Really? Tell me more. Tell me more. That's important <laughs> to you. What else? LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone, and LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS Church leaders, policies, or practices. <laughs>